Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. We get, we get this knock on our door in Seattle. It was before 7 a.m. And I go to the door. You did. I was really confused because it was before 7 a.m. And we were two weeks into a global pandemic. And we had a glass door. Gestured to the two people at the door like, what is this, right? And they flashed badges at me that said FBI. The FBI came to Carl and Amy Nelson's house in the middle of the pandemic. That's when Carl found out that he was under investigation for a federal crime. Over the next two years, the couple had most of their money and assets seized by the government. What wasn't taken, they had to sell to pay for lawyers. They lived in constant fear of the FBI returning one morning and arresting Carl in front of their four daughters. And to this day, both Amy and Carl insist that Carl has done nothing wrong. And he has yet to actually be charged with a crime. But still, the two of them have had their lives ripped apart in ways that could have completely destroyed their marriage. Amy's me all like, the time. Why are you still with or they're him? Like, they're just like, people will be like, I can't believe like you've stuck by his side. And I'm like, what do you mean? A good friend of mine who's been my friend for 20 years is Carl's lawyer and I called him when this all started, and he said, you have to treat it like Carl has brain cancer, and you're going to need to listen to the best doctors in the world, but here you're going to have to listen to the best lawyers. And, like, I very much think of it like that, you know, that, like, something bad has happened, and how do I help my husband? I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed. Back in the mid-2000s, Amy had been living in New York for eight years and working as a litigator on Wall Street. She was working crazy hours representing clients like Standard & Poor's through the financial crisis. She describes it now as something like drinking out of a fire hose for years. And frankly, she was completely burnt out by her job and the dating scene. Like a lot of women in New York City, myself included, she was looking for something new. And... You know, the first place that I thought to go would be Minneapolis because I had a lot of friends there. I could be more in the wilderness. And it was still really interesting in terms of practicing law because I wanted to to keep doing that. She just did it. She uprooted her life and moved to Minnesota. And when she got there, she reached out to a friend from the area. In very Minnesota style, see, do you see how I said Minnesota right there? This friend immediately connected Amy to about 20 people and they threw a happy hour for her. And one of the people I met was this woman named Molly, who was also an attorney, exactly my age, and had lived in New York. And we really hit it off, and we were talking, and just kind of like midstream in our first conversation, she said to me, you need to meet my older brother's best friend. And, and I said, why? And she goes, I just can't really explain it. You just need to meet him. I think you two would, would really like each other. Yeah. So I got an email from Amy and just saying we should, you know, I understand we should meet. No, uh, no, no. You emailed me. Oh, I, well, but I, I was going to say, I thought that I emailed. Here's how I remember it going. That's Carl, by the way. 
There was an email exchange, and then I know I emailed Amy to ask her if she would like to meet for a drink or whatever, and she promptly emailed me back that she was going to Turkey. <laughs> I remember the the anecdote, or at least my anecdote to that was, oh, the old Turkey excuse. I, I get that all the time. But needless to say, she followed up and said, you know, when I get back, I'd love to get together. So when Amy got back, they scheduled a date. We set a time and I was supposed to meet Amy at, at the top of these escalators that were in her building that would take us down to where we were going to go have a drink. And I was mentioning to my coworker at the time, I said, yeah, I'm supposed to, you know, I got this date tonight. And he said, well, I'll walk down there with you the way in Minneapolis typically parks somewhere along the Skyway system. And then you can walk into work, you know, in, inside away from the elements, which in Minnesota can be pretty, pretty brutal. And so he said, well, I'll come walk with you. I said, great. And this is a good buddy of mine, still a good buddy of mine to this day. And we walked down there and, and kind of waiting, you know, sitting there chatting with my friend. And all of a sudden this gal comes up the escalator and she gets off and she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and I'm going, oh, oh boy. And, and she says, Carl. And I said, I said, yeah, you must be Amy. And my, my buddy immediately grabbed me and said, she's way too much woman for you, bro. Good luck. And he walks up. <laughs> which to this day I tease him about. But of course, that led to our first date, which was phenomenal. As I recall, we sat and talked for three hours. It was a long time. We just kind of hit it off. So after, at the end of our date, Carl asked for my phone number and then like immediately texted and said, I really enjoyed meeting you. I'd like to take you out again. Are you available on this day? And I remember being like, what is this? Like, because no, like people just don't, I don't know. Like, I just feel in New York, like everyone was like playing a game or heads on swivel sticks and no one followed through. And I thought it was just, I mean, Carl, Carl's a very direct person, as I've learned over the, over the many years we've been together, which makes a lot of things easier when someone's really direct. And then on our second date, we started talking about where I am from and I am from Columbus, Ohio. And so Carl mentioned to me that his mother was also from Columbus, Ohio. And I asked him where he was from. And he said, I can't remember the name of the suburb, but I remember the golf course. And I'm, so Jack Nicholas is from my suburb in Columbus, Ohio, and has built a number of golf courses here. And so I said to Carl, well, what's the golf course? And he said, oh, it's Scioto. And I was like, well, that's where I'm from because that country club is in my neighborhood and I worked there growing up. And the thing is, is that my parents are also from Upper Arlington. And so I got Carl's mother's name and I went home and I I called my mom and I said, mom, you know, someone named Catherine Stoltz. And she said, why are you asking me? And I said, well, I met her son. And she said, did you meet Carlton or Whitney? And I said, okay, I guess you know her. I said, I met, I met Carlton. And she said, well, she goes, Catherine is your aunt Joanne's best friend. And I believe you met Carlton when you were three or four years old. And after that, our third date was at Carl's mother's house. I I love this story so much. I just picture you guys playing when you were like three years old. And I picture my kids, actually, because both of our, all of our kids are like around that age. And I'm like, you never know. You never know who's going to be your husband. <laughs> you never do know. Well, and it's funny, too, because I, I love where I grew up in Upper Arlington. But I left when I was 18. Like, I was out. And... Then the fact that like when I was 31 years old, all those years later, I meet this guy whose mother is from Upper Arlington. It just, you can never really leave where you grow up. They dated for the next six months before Carl got a job offer in Seattle. And I went to Amy and I said, hey, I got this opportunity, little, little twist. It's in Seattle. I'm going to have to move there. Would you, would you like to come with me? And she said, yeah. Like without, I, I don't think Amy blinked. She just said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, no problem. Which knowing how, you know, lawyers and law firms are, that, that was not, that was, that was no easy yes from her by any means. I mean, I loved him. I knew, I knew that I was in love with him. And I have always been the kind of person that makes decisions through the lens of like, will I regret going and doing something, will I regret doing something and failing or not trying and not even knowing? And I really felt like I 
could probably get a job anywhere, right? But I couldn't find this guy that I fell in love with anywhere. And I'd never really met anyone like Carl. So I just thought, yeah, let's give it a shot. And it's actually, Joe, it was 10 years ago today that we arrived in Seattle. That's right, 10 years, that's right. It was with what was then a medium-sized tech company called Amazon. 10 years ago, Amazon was a very different company. And Carl wasn't even a tech worker. He worked in real estate. So just to be clear, I was hired by Amazon Web Services, which is a, which at the time was a, a startup inside of Amazon. Amazon is a, is, a, is a unique animal in that it tries to branch out into every kind of business that it thinks that, or that people within the company think that would be potentially productive. And they, in the case of Amazon Web Services, it was a nascent company in terms of this infrastructure of a service as a service, meaning the building provisioning of data center capacity and then selling, you know, compute power to people, corporations, individuals, whatever, was a relatively new concept, sort of outsourcing of your compute power. And the reason that I got hired was because they had hit a place where they they hadn't they knew they wanted to go really big, but they didn't know how. And well, one component of that was the real estate component. And so I got hired essentially to, to scale their real estate, meaning go out and develop a bunch of buildings, which is exactly what I was doing. So it, it, was, it was a new business within Amazon. So in layman's terms, Carl was hired to scout for potential real estate where Amazon could put the many, many data centers they would eventually need as they grew. But yeah, I mean, one thing AWS had like five or 6,000 employees when he started. I mean, it was a very small company. I remember Carl would tell me when he first got to AWS that he would go to All Hands and it was like a room with Andy Jassy, who had started AWS, who's now the CEO of Amazon and 1.5 million people. But like at the beginning, it was just... It was was small. It was small. And, And it was your typical startup. It was fast and loose and, you know... Entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. Bar the door, Katie. Get it done. Carl was working really hard. He was on the road about three weeks a month. Amy started working at a boutique law firm, and after living there for six months and dating for a year, Carl got a ring. Well, of course, I, you know, from the time I got the ring to the time I wanted to propose, like, I wanted to get that ring out of my, it was burning a hole in my body. I wanted to get it over with because I was nervous. Were you um, nervous? I was going to say no. No, I wasn't nervous. You were going to say no. I just... I, you know, look, I, it, it was a big commitment and I knew it was a big commitment. And so I wanted to, I wanted to, I guess I built it up in my mind, but in any event, I. I it was raining. It was pouring no, rain. No, the night I was going to do it, it was raining sideways. Like you couldn't go outside. It was raining so hard. And of course I just was like, I can't, I can't just wait another night. I can't do it. I won't do it. So I put the ring because I was like, oh, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to just tell Amy we're going to go to dinner. and Because there was this really, the probably one of the best restaurants in Seattle. And it's this little tiny Italian restaurant in the middle, middle of Alki that, that gets people from all over Seattle. And we just happened to live right, literally right next door. Literally Like next we door. shared a wall. Our with, house smelled like focaccia bread. Yeah, I mean, it was, and, and <laughs> but it was the best food. I probably gained 15 pounds just living right next to it. I was like, well, I'll just say we're going to go to Dick's. I planned on going out to dinner anyway afterwards, after I had proposed on the walk. And so I put the ring in one of her cowboy boots, and I picked the one that I thought she would wear to go out. I they, used to wear cowboy boots a lot. Yeah, I don't know why. Well, she, she just had them. And so I thought, okay, great. And so I said, well, let's go Let's go next door to dinner. Like, put on your clothes. And she's getting ready, and then she puts on her clothes and she comes out, she goes, I'm ready. And I was like, you're going to wear those shoes? Well. That's what I said, well, and I'm, you got so pissed at me. Well, I was frustrated by the entire situation because it was like a Tuesday night, it was pouring rain, and I had gone to flywheel. I'd gone to cycle class, and then he'd wanted to go to dinner, and I was annoyed that I had to shower, but I did it. And so I showered, and you then. Just generally annoyed. I was annoyed, and I got ready. And yeah, I put on these boots. And then yeah, Carl was like, are you really going to wear those boots? And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, you're going to criticize my boots? And he and I'm just, and he's just follows me into the closet. He goes, put on the other boots. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, what is your problem? Yeah. 
and I put my foot in the boot. I'm like, there's something in my boot. And then I like, tear it it's off. So and then, I, and then I, I put my hand in and I pull it out. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And you turn around and I was on my knee and that was, so I proposed in a closet. <laughs> in a closet. On a rainy night. On a, in a, our landlord would have called that the second bedroom. It yeah, was, it was a closet. It was a closet, um, which is sort of New York style anyway. But I got down on a knee and Amy turned around and that was that. Was that. that was that. That was that. They got married in the mountains outside of Seattle. It also rained on their wedding day. And then it rained again on the night the first of their four daughters was born. We were committed to babies. I, you know, between, so we got married in September of 2013 and our first daughter Sloan was born in August of 2014. We had four daughters in four years and seven months. And and before we got married, just for the record, <laughs> before we got married, I told Amy, I said, hey, you know, if we ever do get married and have kids, I just want you to know we're going to have all daughters. And we did. And Amy said, well, how do you know that? I said, the universe is just telling me. I don't know why, <laughs> but it, it is. And it was. And it did. And, and so, we did. It's so hard. Like the years between when we got married and when the pandemic started are such a blur. There were babies. I started a business. Carl's at AWS. Homes. We bought and sold homes. We bought and sold homes. We, you know, it was, it was, it's those years, right? Those early years with your family. And Carl and I both traveled a ton for work. And so we really like saw each other on the weekends. There was a point where we were, we saw each other at the airport. Yeah. It was literally like we would pencil lunch at the airport when we were crossing. Yeah. And like. Which was crazy. I mean, I know, like, I don't even say like the early years of our marriage were hard because they were just like, we were just doing them. Right. Like we were just doing them. Yeah. Yeah. We had a good we time. Had a blast. We and, had a good and, time. And, you know, we tried to do as much as we possibly could. I mean. I remember my 40th birthday was in February of 2020, right before the pandemic. And Carl and I took a, a trip alone, which was the first, the second trip alone we'd taken since we had babies. Yeah. And the other trip was like, we met, we were both in Europe for work and we got to meet for three days, which was amazing. But this was really the first kind of thing we'd done. And I remember looking at Carl and and thinking like, how did I get so lucky to have this life with my husband and my babies? Yeah, it was good. It was good. We had a lot of success. Good run, a lot of success. Kids were happy. We were we happy. We friends. Yeah, a lot of friends. It was fun. It was fun. We bought the house we were going to raise the girls in. Yeah. There was that. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Amazon Web Services was growing by leaps and bounds. They were now a huge part of Amazon, and Carl was still working all the time. But he was finally working towards a future where he might have his own business, his own real estate development business, his own consulting business, and maybe eventually have a better quality of life. Amy actually quit being a lawyer after their second daughter was born. That's when she got the idea for a women's clubhouse and workspace. And then, this is pretty amazing, she got the funding to scale it nationally. She named it The Riveter. And The Riveter, in under three years, we went from an idea to 130 employees, raised $30 million. We were in six states. I mean, it was a wild ride. You were busy. But Amy was doing what she, I think, is sort of destined for, which is to build things. Amy's a builder the end of the day. She's, she's someone that, that is not just creative and not just smart, but no, but has the intestinal fortitude to just kind of keep trudging forward no matter what. <laughs> That's rare. It's, it's coming handy. Because in the past two years, Amy and Carl's lives completely changed. There was a pandemic, which changed things for all of us. It was the pandemic that absolutely decimated Amy's workspace business, and she had no choice but to pivot over and over again. But that really wasn't the worst of it. See, their life went from really good, really happy, successful, to absolute chaos in what felt like the blink of an eye. What happened next to Carl and Amy can get a little confusing. It's a lot of technical terms and legal terms, and to be honest, Amy and Carl are both still confused about what is happening. But the crux of it is that the federal government would launch an investigation into Carl's business dealings that allowed them to seize a million dollars in assets from the family, force them to sell their Seattle home and their car, 
and liquidate all of their retirement savings accounts. More on that after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. When we left Amy and Carl, they were pretty much living their dream life. And Carl was finally thinking about leaving Amazon Web Services so he could spend more time with his family. I was building my development company on the outside that I was going to go jump into. You know, I could kind of take Amazon or leave it. At one point, I had actually gone to my boss and said, you know, I'm done here. I think I'm and, and she unfortunately had to go on medical leave. And she was like, well, can you just manage the team while I'm out on medical leave and back in Austin? And, uh, you know, I reluctantly agreed to do so. But I, it got to a point where, I, you know. I just, I, I always operate, I, I operate the same way, no matter what. Sorry, I'm moving along. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I ended up getting terminated from Amazon because I was yelling at a vendor. I do not believe that's why you're terminated. Well, that's what they say. Now, I, whether it's true or not, I, I don't, I have my own suspicion as to why I actually did. But nevertheless, it was sort of relieving in a way. I was sort of like, okay, good. I can finally go do what I want to do because I'm, I'm kind of done here. And he had worked with an attorney to set up a company called All Core Development. And that company had taken investment, just like the Riveter had taken investment, legally yeah. documented with a lawyer. I mean, um, everybody needs to have their next step plan, at least my opinion. Yeah. I want to have my next steps planned out, right? What's the... What's life after corporate? Well, yeah. I, it's I got to have something that I can build on. I don't want to start from scratch. So. And to put it and and just to like to put a pin in it, one of the one of Carl's investors had made money from a real estate developer who had built data centers with their own money that Amazon later leased. So the guy that made money from the real estate developer through a contract negotiated by lawyers for work he did, he then went to Carl and invested money in Carl's company. And with a lawyer, like all lawyers involved everywhere. So many lawyers. So many lawyers. And then after Carl left Amazon, he started operating that company. Now, you know, I like I was still working as a lawyer when I set up the Riveter and I started taking investments. So like I didn't see anything wrong with this. Wasn't some secret. I mean And then Carl, like with his real estate development company, pitched proposals to Amazon, right? Like there was no secret here. And but but then on um April 2nd, 2020. Day after April Fool's Day. We get probably this, why they didn't come on. We get, we get this knock on our door in Seattle. It was before 7 a.m. And I go to the door. You did. I was really there. confused because it was before 7 a.m. And we were two weeks into a global pandemic. And we had a glass door. And I, I kind of I gestured to the two people at the door like, what is this, right? And they flashed badges at me that said FBI. Yes, you did hear that right. The FBI came knocking on their door in the middle of a global pandemic. And so they came in. I invited them in and said, come on in. What's going on? And, and they said uh, they wanted to speak to Carl. And I said to you in front of them, and this is a PSA to anybody listening to this. I said to Carl, you cannot speak to these agents without a lawyer. It does not matter if any law enforcement agency and representatives try to speak to you. Ask for a lawyer. You don't have to speak to them. It doesn't make you guilty. That is your right. And, and it's true. I think a lot of people think that if they say, I need a lawyer, that they're somehow admitting that they're guilty of something, which is totally not true. But in any event, 
I invited him in and I said, I understand, Amy, but I'd like to, I, I want to know what they had to say. I mean, I, they hadn't said anything yet. And so I invited him at the time we had a bouncy house set up in our living room and my kids were, kids bouncing, were bouncing on it. And I had these four FBI agents come. Two, it was two. It was two then, four later. And so two come in and I said, why don't we go up to the office? So we went up to the office and sat down and I said, what's this all about? And the, the, the one agent said, well, we have some questions for you regarding some transactions and some other things. I said, great. What, what, how can I help you? And she, she, asked, like, one question. She, she asked one question. She said, what do you know about Villanova Trust? And I said, I don't really know anything about Villanova Trust, which was 100% true. I really didn't know any. I mean, I knew it existed, but I didn't know anything about it. And she said, okay, I want to stop right now and back up. And she said, this is your chance to help yourself. And I said, no, this is my chance to call my lawyer because it sounds to me like you've already got something in mind here. So let me show you the door, which is exactly what I did. And before she left. And before they left, they handed me a number of documents, one of which said I was the target of a federal investigation, which I, at the time I had no idea what that meant. Another said they intended to seize a bunch of my bank accounts, which I had no idea what that meant. I mean, intend to seize. Why are you going to tell me you intend to seize anything? Yeah, and you like, just seize it. This is confusing to people, but like Carl, you know, that day the FBI just came to talk to him. Carl had no idea that there was an investigation that was going on. Carl was not arrested that day. Carl has never been arrested. Carl has never been charged with a crime. And, but like, you get all these documents telling you all these things. And I didn't know what they meant. I wasn't a criminal lawyer. I had no idea what any of them meant. Well, it's disconcerting. But my my feeling on the matter was pretty simple. I I mean, and Amy was not happy, obviously. But I said, look, we're going to clear this up in a week or two. Like, this is not a, we're, this is not but <laughs> so be dead in a week or two. Like, but we so but I, we found out during the course well, of the day. But so I then call my lawyer, who informs me that not only have I been visited, but that my business partner's been visited and potentially other people. And so as the day progresses, we find out that this has been a nationwide deal: Minnesota, that, that, Seattle, yeah. and and now Virginia, we know Colorado. Yeah. They they visited a bunch of people and. Essentially, accused uh, everyone accused of a everyone of a, a crime that had been committed, and you know that that was that was kind of the that that was sort of the alarm bell for me. Like, well, this isn't good. I don't understand what's going on here. This is not. And what we this is certainly not criminal. I don't understand what's going on. And what we now know, all these years later, is that in February of 2020, Amazon and their lawyers, Amazon hired a former federal prosecutor from the Eastern District of Virginia. His name is Patrick Stokes. And Patrick Stokes called up his former colleagues that are prosecutors in the Eastern District of Virginia and said, Amazon wants to present to you allegations of a crime. So Amazon went to the Department of Justice and they presented a very long PDF with allegations of a crime. And Carl was never asked a single question. Nobody was. The government took those allegations and accused all these people of a crime. Nobody had ever from Amazon come to me and said, hey, we want to understand this better. Or we don't, what's going on with this? They just came out of the box saying, you did something wrong. You committed a crime. crime." Plead guilty. And went to to the FBI and said, you need to get these guys. And we've since found out in email traffic that they met. 90 times. 90 times. And for context. a year and a half. That's That's every once a week. At the time, we didn't understand, but what was really happening was Amazon had hired a bunch of former federal prosecutors who worked at law firms or do work at law firms to to essentially go to their contacts inside the U.S. government. Yeah, it, I mean, clearly they were colluding. I told them all along, this is what I did. Nothing was illegal. Nothing was unethical. Nothing even violated my employment contract. So I'm happy to have that conversation. So Carl had not been charged with a crime. He wasn't arrested. He was being investigated by the FBI, but he still didn't entirely understand what that investigation was all about. I'm deeply afraid of them, okay? And, like, it's very, I mean, I can, like, over the past two years, like, we've had to, so they came on April 2nd, and over the next two months, on a Tuesday in May, the government seized every dollar we had 
using civil forfeiture from our bank accounts, including my bank accounts, because Carl and I shared bank accounts. So on and, a random Tuesday in May, and, we were just left penniless. And, and, to, and, to, and to just to, to, to highlight what, what that means is they take all your money and then they say, by the way, you can't even see what we've accused you we've of never because seen. it's under seal. And then there was a discussion that they said to our lawyers, the government, hey, if your guy wants to plead guilty, we can talk Cooperate. about- it's Cooperate. Plead, which means plead guilty. We can talk about giving some of this money back. And it's really like at that point that I realized, like, I don't even, I don't know what this is about, but this is a hunt. Like we are being hunted, right? Well, and like, how do you- When they tell you we can give you some of your money back- if you if, if you, you plead, plead guilty, guilty. That, that's the ultimate quid pro quo. Money but that's, back. I guess, legal. And then two weeks after they took our money. So the government has a certain set of tools when they want someone to plead guilty to a crime. And one of them is civil forfeiture, taking your money so that you can't pay for a defense, let alone feed your family. Another one is the threat of arresting you in your home. If you're like Bernie Madoff and you plead guilty to something, they'll let you go in and turn yourself in. But if you won't plead guilty, what the prosecutors can do is say, we're going to indict you. We are going to charge you with a crime. And then we are going to show up at your house in front of your family and drag you out at gunpoint. And they were telling that to our lawyers, to Carl's lawyers, that they were going to do that. That was really terrifying because we had four little girls. June 5th, 2020, there was a banging at our door at 6.47 a.m. banging. Banging. And someone screaming FBI. And I opened the door and we thought they were there to arrest Carl because that's what they told us was going to happen. Well, I walked out with my hands out like they were going to slap the cuffs on me. I said, let's go. And they said, we're here for a search warrant. I said, you're here for a search warrant? I said, you came here 10 weeks ago. Why didn't you just perform the search warrant then? And then they proceeded to do 30 minutes of a search warrant when a search warrant typically takes all day and they take everything. Like they didn't, they, they yeah. weren't there for a search warrant. They were there to intimidate me and Amy and my family and try to show that they had guns and that they were they did and their FBI and, jackets and, and that they and their blue FBI jackets that they that they meant business and that you know if I didn't plead guilty they were going to you know they were just going to keep intimidating and and trying to show me who's boss and the the irony is I cooperated with them to the letter they said where's your computer I said here it is they said what's the password I said and they're talking to me. They know I'm represented so at this not point. Supposed this is to be 10 weeks later. They know that they can't talk to me, but yet they are. And of course, I'm saying, look, oh, and whatever, if, and whatever they know. you need, guys, I'll give you whatever you need. So they say, well, we need your computer. I said, here it is. Here's the password. I watch them log in. I say, here's my phone. Here's the password. I watch them log in. They, they take this stuff and they take, you know, a couple documents and they leave. And only to find out 10 months later, they come back and say, your computer has been encrypted. We can't get in. We need the BitLocker key. And I said, I don't even know what a BitLocker key is, guys. And we tried to find it. We called Microsoft. We like, we tried everything. I, I we mean, tried to find it for th them. This is, the FBI is the most, well, it's true. It's, no, just, it's just like, it's really, it's really complicated to understand how all of this works, right? Like Carl gave them his, his password to the computer, like, why is it encrypted? And then there's a filing that the government made before a judge where they said that Carl was refusing to help them unlock it. And it's like, that's 100% not true. Well, then, and, and it's just the, the whole F process the, the is FBI, so confusing. on numerous occasions and numerous discussions that my lawyers had with them, gave my lawyers information that was clearly lies that they knew were not true. It's hard. And they continued to say, this happened, this happened, this happened. My guys say, no, it didn't. It just didn't. You, you're, you're getting it wrong. So there, it's, it's, it was a terror campaign from day one. And, and, we, it, and it, I just didn't know it at the time. We do, you don't, like, I just think you, want, I think you, I think we're taught to believe that there's a justice system. And listen, like, we're white. We have a whole lot of privilege. And I think we have to acknowledge that because we, yeah. you know, people of color are faced with, like, outrageous racism in the system every single day. And, you know, we didn't understand this is how the system worked. I believe that if someone accuses you of a crime, that you have it, and it is their job to prove it, not your job to say you didn't do it. But that has not been Carl's experience. It's not been my experience watching him, and it's really been heartbreaking. Well, the whole thing, I think this, the stuff at the end of the day doesn't even matter because we're just like, we have to keep going. But it was, uh, for me, it was when we couldn't get them to agree to tell us, they would tell you if they were going to indict you and not arrest you in front of our kids. Those months, the toll that took on sure. us, because sure. what we started doing 
after they did the search warrant, I got even more scared. And I, I just couldn't. I couldn't be there in the morning. Amy was rightfully terrified. She was terrified that the FBI would come back and arrest Carl in front of their girls one morning. But for the next year, they got the kids up at 5 a.m. and they left the house for the next three hours. More on that after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. If I was going to get arrested, I didn't want it to be in front of my kids. We're just, we're and I try. told them, I'll come in. I'll come yeah. in. If you, if, you want, if you want to charge me, I will come in right now. No problem. But they, they, they refused to do that. They insisted that, no, we will come and arrest you. And so you guys took the girls every morning. What did you tell them? So we have treated this whole thing like an adventure because these girls have had to just pivot a hundred times. So we just, it was the pandemic. The pandemic gave us a lot of cover for the girls of being like, everything is a big adventure. So we would take them to parks every morning. We drove all over Puget Sound. We must've gone to 50 different parks. Oh, definitely. And we would have picnics. We would get donuts or McDonald's and have, have a picnic for breakfast. And then they had no choice but to sell their house to pay for the lawyer's fees. And we just left. We literally... Packed the car up and drove to my sister's I house remember, in California. I remember leaving the it house. It was raining, and we just told the girls we were going on another adventure. They moved into Amy's sister's basement for three weeks, and then with Carl's family. How we felt feels. safe there too. We felt safe. It's really hard when you don't feel physically safe where you live anymore. That was the hardest part. That's hard. That was the hardest part. And it was hard for me. Not because I was afraid of being arrested, but because I didn't want my kids or my wife to see that. I just said, look, this is inappropriate. I'm, Especially when I'm telling you, you know, I have no passport. I have no no ability to go anywhere. I don't, I'm not going to go anywhere. He lo- just because he lost his passport a while ago. It was yeah. stolen. But like, I mean, the thing is, it's like that I kept asking myself is like, why does our government want to traumatize my little girls? Like for what? Yeah. For what? Amy and Carl have acknowledged over and over again, and many times in this interview with me, that despite this being a terrible thing to happen to their family, they knew they were in a very privileged position to be able to afford lawyers at all and to have family to move in with. They know that this happens to other people every single day who do not have those privileges. But they also remained confused and in a completely strange limbo where Carl had not been arrested and their lawyers and outside counsel continued to tell them that no crimes had been committed. This is a situation where, like, what happened happened. Like, Amazon wants to say it's a federal crime. We don't believe it violated Carl's employment contract. So we're, we're not on the same page here. And the other thing is, it's like, when someone accuses you of a crime and uses that tool, what they want to do is they want to make you small, and they want to make you ashamed. Their, their whole goal, the whole goal of the U.S. government, is to, as Amy said, make you feel small. They don't want you to communicate with anybody. They don't want you to talk to anybody. And I will say, you do learn who your friends are and who your friends are. I mean, you have certain people that you never thought in a million years would turn their back on you that suddenly, boom, they're gone. It's been heartbreaking. And then there's people that you never thought in a million years would be there for you (laughs) that they just show up every day, every single day, and they're there all the time. I I don't even know. It's hard, yeah. It, 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 there's so much energy and focus on the, the, this and the kids. Like it's the this kids. and the kids. Our marriage is this and the kids. Like, we don't, like, if, if... 
We I, try I, to make time. We try we, to we make try, time. But it's, it's, it's really hard. Like I, I was with some of my girlfriends recently and they're amazing. And they're asking me like how I was like caring for myself and what I was doing. And what I want to say is like when you're living in a war zone and someone's shooting at you, you don't think about self-care. You think about surviving. And like Amazon has 38 lawyers from Gibson Dunn, which is a very expensive law firm, trying to put my husband in prison. Like, uh, there isn't self-care. There's survival. There's fighting. And there's taking care of our girls and, like, making sure that they enjoy life. And, like, I think for the most part, we've shielded them. Like, I think for the most part. You know, they're happy. They're healthy. They have friends. They're in school. But, like, our marriage? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, we I, I think we, you know, we have complementary skill sets. But at the same time, we also... I mean, Amy and I tend where where we are alike. We tend to we're both fiery, uh, and so you know, little things like legal strategy or like why is this not happening faster? You know, where where I you know where Amy who doesn't have visibility into what I'm doing with my lawyers will say, you know, why why are you not doing this with them? Why are you not getting? And I say you just don't understand. You got to just you, you just got to wait. And just the waiting is it so makes hard. her it makes I mean. What's funny, ironically, is April 2nd, 2020, this all happened, or this, this, for us, it really became reality. At the time, you know, the idea of two years out was crazy. It was like, this will not be here in two years. Like, this will not. (laughs) And, you know, we passed the two year mark since April 2nd, which is even longer and the whole span of things. But, we passed that April 2nd mark here last April and we're still uncomfortable with the timing. It just doesn't. I mean, and then the hard part for me, I, I try not to think about it this way, but it's like, I only get all this time with our kids. Well, that, and, and that's the, that for me is probably the biggest heartbreak is Amazon. You can take my money. You can take, you know, you can take, take a lot livelihood. of things. You can take a lot of things away from me, but Taking away the time that Amy and I should have had with our kids uninterrupted and un- yeah. is that is unforgivable. And it's something that no amount of money can make up for. But like we talk about it sometimes, like our marriage, like and I think we both just agree, like right now we just have to fight. And like I have this dream that when this is over, we get to go to Iceland. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> but it's just like it's real for you. <laughs> None of my guy friends ever asked me like why why is Amy stuck with you? But apparently a lot of Amy's, <laughs> people lot of ask Amy's me friends all are like, the time. Why are you still with or they're him? Like, they're just like, people will be like, I can't believe like you've stuck by his side. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you don't, like, our, a good friend of mine who's been my friend for 20 years is Carl's lawyer. And I called him when this all started. And he said, you have to treat it like Carl has brain cancer. And you're going to need to listen to the best doctors in the world. But here you're going to have to listen to the best lawyers. And, like, I very much think of it like that. You know, that, like, something bad has happened. And how do I help my husband? And at the end of the day, Carl still hasn't been charged with a crime. If they were (laughs) to charge me with a crime, it would be what's called private sector honest services fraud. Which is depriving your private employer of your honest services Services. as an employee. That is a federal crime. Probably never heard of it. We never had. So in other words, if as a politician, I accept bribes or something else to make a vote vote. vote or something else, I have deprived the public of my honest services. So that's, that's pretty clear in terms of those pieces. Here's what it isn't. It's not a conflict of interest. They made it very clear. A conflict of interest does not constitute this kind of fraud. Now, on the other side of that, they said a bribe, a bribe or, a or a kickback is. And what's, and what's interesting is you'll note that Amazon has over and over and over again said these were kickbacks. These were kickbacks. These were kickbacks. So they say that the investment in Carl's business was, was a, a kickback. kickback. And a kickback just so we're clear, would be if I were to engage Amazon in a project, put my thumb on the scale and say, 
hey, we're going to charge just, you guys charge just, you know, 10% more on whatever it is that you're doing, in this case, real estate development. And then we'll split that or some, you know, version. So I'll get that. a deal approved for I'll you. I'll get a deal approved for you. And, and you then pay we'll, me. And then you'll pay me a, a portion of that excess that I get approved as part Well, of and so here, somebody who made money from real estate developer, not from Amazon, invested in Carl's business. And they say that investment is a kickback. And I think two things are really important to note around that. One, it wasn't Amazon's money that this guy made that he invested in Carl's business. So I don't even understand how it would be a kickback because it didn't start with Amazon. And then the other thing is that Carl has no ability to approve any deals. Carl's like a baseball scout. Carl would be like, here's like three pieces of land I think are good for you or something. And then Amazon, there's eight or nine people that ultimately make the decision that all have to approve a deal. Carl's not one of them. But, the, but besides that, there's like there's also, 15 groups at Amazon that vet yeah, every piece of land that Carl's also, not involved in. There's also another 15 groups that, you know, I say, here's a piece of dirt or here's three pieces of dirt that now gets looked at from an environmental perspective with a totally separate team that gets looked at finance, from a, risk, a finance perspective. risk and resiliency perspective, a finance perspective. So there's... 12 teams. I make one piece of the recommendation. I don't say this is, has to be the deal. I say this is what, you know, where we can go. Everybody else weighs in on that. Well, Amazon has said, well, the money you made, well, the guy that made money off of one of your developers, that he invested in your company, that's a kickback. They also said that this gentleman that made the money from the developer they said that he basically maintained a bank account that was that that I could just go and pull money from. So not true. Which is absolutely not true. Never happened. In fact, he put money into a valid company that was doing real estate development activities. Uh, had general counsel. Had you know employees that worked for it, and was one hundred percent above board. Now here's the thing: we are not a legal podcast. That is very very clear everyone who has ever listened to Committed. And this story would be confusing even for a legal podcast. But that does not matter. What I think is so relatable about Amy and Carl's story is they were plunged into a situation that was completely out of control, one that threatened absolutely everything about how they lived their lives. In that total quagmire of shit, they had no choice but to rely on one another. Look, like there was never a moment where we weren't going to support each other through this. Yeah. Like we have never questioned that. When I can tell he's down, I try to be up and I know you do the same. Yeah, I'd say the same. I mean, Amy's parents have been great foundations for us. My dad has been great foundation for us. Uh, it's a bear, man. I mean, you got to you, you just you can't describe waking up one morning and opening up your bank account and seeing that it's been you know, wiped out. And, 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 and it's not just that. It's that. And then the bank comes to you and says, by the way, we're canceling all of your credit cards. Yeah. Even though you pay on time and you pay it all off every yep. month, we're canceling all of your credit line because of this. I mean, I... And then, and then all of a sudden, you, you're, you're, you, you know, you're, you're struggling to make money and, and, then, and then like you're me, getting fired from oh, jobs. I mean, I, I had to leave my startup to get a job. And the first job that I got I went through months of interviews and I got this incredible job. And on my fifth day, they fired me over Zoom because they read an article about the forfeitures. Which had nothing to do with Amy. It had everything to do with me. I mean, the, the only reason Amy was mentioned in the forfeitures is because we had a joint account. But Amy continues to try to find the good in every single day, even when that's really hard. Both. I would we're, also we're say, like, Carl, people. it's a win that, like, that we're living that we have lives, right. that we're with our daughters, that we are still making money, that we still have friends. Like, these are the things that they wanted to take from us. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I try to read Amy when she's down. I mean, a Amy's Amy's a trooper, but that doesn't mean she doesn't get, you know. And also, like, down. there have been some very dark times. Yeah. Very dark. Very dark times. Extremely. I mean, we are not. I mean, there have been. <laughs> but, but, I, but I, I mean, I think through... You know, my, my personal opinion on on any of that is, you know, through through great trepidation and through great fear, oftentimes, you know, the strongest unions and the strongest bonds can be, you know, sort of showcased. And, and you know, to the extent that Amy and I have, I mean, we're in this one way or another forever. 
I will say this. It, this whole thing has changed our perspective a lot on we, we talk about with our little girls, big problems and little, little problems. problems. <laughs> you know, you recalibrate your entire life in a lot of ways. That's so little, like this. so little matters to us. We, 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 we've gotten to the point where now it's, yeah, there's so very little that is like, oh, that's worth getting worked up Like, about. I mean, like, okay, so we're renting a house in Ohio because we couldn't buy a house. And, to, and also like this house we're renting, we passed a credit check and got the leases ready. And then they emailed us and they're like, whoa, we just Googled you. <laughs> like, you got to pay your whole year up front if you're going to stay here. So this is like, it's just constant, right? It's constantly this. And uh, so we paid our whole year up front. And like, if we want to stay here another year, we have to pay the whole year up front. I have literally no idea what we're going to do in August, if we're going to be able to afford it or not, or what we're going to do. And I'm just like, okay, we'll just figure it out. <laughs> like, because it's we have to. all you can do. It's all you can do. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.